I'm Kari Rowe, and you're listening to the Foreign Saints Podcast, a pulse check for those of us that die daily, creating content to help you stay committed to the spiritual and social vision of Jesus Christ. And we are continuing with our walk through the gospel according to Matthew. All right, first, uh, first study in Matthew of the new year. So I think it would be wise, at least for me, to reiterate the purpose of this study, right? <clears throat> Again, my name's Kari Rowe. I am just a uh, you know, little bit of uh, information if this is your first time listening. I'm a respiratory therapist in a recently upgraded to Trauma 2 uh, trauma center in Charlotte, North Carolina, who is a I would say a devout follower of Jesus Christ. Um, I believe that the Bible is the word of God. I believe that God reaches people through this text. I believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, and that no one comes to the Father but through him. I believe that he is the life, you know, and so studying his life uh, can only mean more life for us. And so I have three purposes to reading the Gospel of Matthew with you all. Um, technically, it was because a friend asked me to do it, so I decided to do it. But the three things we're focusing on is, firstly, to know Jesus better, who he really is and what he really taught. And this is definitely an episode um, this is definitely an episode that's going to be focused on that point for sure. Number two, to deconstruct myths and falsehoods about being a Christian to understand Christ's kingdom call better. And we'll be getting into that today as well. And to see the continuity of scripture through the Old and New Testaments, right? To help Christians appreciate their Old Testament as the foundation and authority for Jesus Christ all the better. And this is also an episode that's going to be doing uh, that in spades as well. Um, like I said, if this is your first time listening, uh, this uh, study through Matthew is going to be a regular series. I plan to finish it out by the end of the year, and I hope that you would join me on that journey, right? If you like this content, uh, feel free to check out the collection of other episodes on this podcast and share it with uh Share it with Christians and skeptics alike, right? But we will be getting into Matthew chapter 4, verses 11, all the way through the end of the chapter 25, right? This is going to be good stuff, all right? This first part uh, is what I, this first half hour is what I would call prophecy and the gospel, right? So picking up where we left off uh, in Matthew 4 last year, uh, we left off with verse 11, which technically is the uh, end verse of the section where Christ is being tempted by Satan in the wilderness. And in verse 11, we see, Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. It's just interesting to think about the humanity of Christ being on display in the text, right? He was limited in his incarnation as a man and needed some much needed r and r after a draining battle against satan right but now we move on to the meat and potatoes of this part right so i'm going to read um i'm going to read this section and then we'll chop it up right starting in verse 12 
Now, when he heard, he being Jesus heard, that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Quote, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea, beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light, and for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Unquote. From that time Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets, and he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. <clears throat> All right, got a lot of territory to cover here in this first half, so let's go ahead and get cracking, shall we? So, verse 12, uh, we see John the Baptist being arrested, and it's just another blow to Jesus, right? The arrest of one of the few other people who really understood who he was, right? As Messiah, right? He's He goes through 40 days and nights of fasting in the wilderness and then has a knockdown, drag out theological debate with Satan. And then his boy John gets arrested. You want to talk about a rough patch of days and you've got one right there. And you got one right there. Um, but that brings us into this prophecy, right? And this prophecy is really where I want to spend um, the majority of the time. I want you to hang on to John being arrested, right? I pointed out along with the humanity of Christ earlier because they will be relevant moving forward in the Gospel of Matthew. But our meat and potatoes is going to be this prophecy. What is this prophecy of Isaiah? And how on earth does Jesus beginning to preach the Gospel of the Kingdom fulfill it, right? Well, it should be familiar. It's actually, um, it's actually Isaiah 9. Right. And having just recently come out of the Christmas season, I think most Christians are probably familiar with a few verses later in Isaiah nine. But this is the setup, right? That familiar uh, prophecy, that familiar text, right, about unto us a child is born. That comes out of the ninth chapter of Isaiah. But this prophecy is in the preceding verses before that. Right. So Isaiah nine uh, chapters one and two, I'm going to put a little marker here and uh in matthew and i will flip uh over to isaiah now's a good time to note that uh these episodes i think are best enjoyed best appreciated when you've got your own bible with you whether it be on your phone or physical and following along right in isaiah chapter 9 uh verses 1 and 2 right isaiah writing says but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea. Right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Have seen a great light. 
And so just some background, just so we can understand, right? Zebulun and Naphtali are two tribes of Israel, right? They're two tribes that are in the northern kingdom. Why do I say northern kingdom? Well, because in Solomon's day, after Solomon's day, after King Solomon's day, the unified nation of Israel split into two kingdoms, a northern and southern kingdom, with the southern kingdom pretty much being the one tribe of Judah, and I believe the remnants of Benjamin and everybody else was the northern tribe, or was the northern kingdom, sorry. And the northern kingdom, I mean, really both were idolatrous, to be completely honest. Uh, the northern kingdom, I suppose, was more idolatrous than Judah. Um, but they were given over to Babylon and Assyrian captivity as per the law of Moses, right? <clears throat> so these places were, you know, these places were rebellious. And Second Kings chapter 17, verses 6 to 23, is the former time that Isaiah is referring to, right? When he says, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. He's referring to something specific in Israel's history. So uh, turning again uh, to 2 Kings, uh, 2 Kings chapter 17, starting in verse 6, going down to um, going down to verse 23. Right? I'm gonna put another marker there in Isaiah to come back to it. And I get it. This is a lot of uh, scripture that we're tying together, right? But this is Bible study that we're doing, right? We're not reading the Bible to be inspired. If that's what we were trying to do, then we would just, you know, do the verse of the day on, you know, on the Bible app, or we would do, um, uh, or, you know, we would just look at our, uh, you know, little verses that we post around the house, right? But Bible study Bible study is not reading to be inspired. It is reading because the text is inspired, right? Two different, uh, two different mindsets in coming to the text, right? If you're reading the text because it is inspired, right, you're going to dig into every nook and cranny, even the bits that don't seem um, all that important. And I promise you, you will come back with gold. If you read to be inspired, the second you hit a section of the text that seems dry to you, um, you know, you'll drop it, you'll move on, you'll scoff at it. You know what I'm saying? You're only going to take the Psalm 23s and the Isaiah 9 uh, and the Isaiah 9s of the world. You won't be reading all of the counsel of God. All right, which is important because the gospel writers are referencing Old Testament texts, Old Testament stories, Old Testament teachings. And if you don't know what they're talking about, it's going to make it really difficult to properly understand uh, to properly understand the New Testament to the fullest extent that you could. And that's what we're about here on the Foreign Saints podcast, understanding the text to the fullest extent that we could. Not, not, the, not the most shallow extent, but the fullest extent. Um, so 2 Kings uh, chapter 17, starting in verse 6. In the ninth year of Hosea, the king of Assyria captured Samaria, the northern kingdom. And he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Hala and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the cities of the Medes. 
And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt from under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that the kings of Israel had practiced. And the people of Israel did secretly against the Lord their God things that were not right. They built for themselves high places, high places being alternative places of worship to the temple in Jerusalem. They built for themselves high places in all their towns, from watchtower to fortified city. They set up for themselves pillars and asherim, um, and other objects of worship, on every high hill and under every green tree. And there they made offerings on all the high places, as the nations did whom the Lord carried away before them. And they did wicked things, provoking the Lord to anger, and they served idols, of which the Lord had said to them, You shall not do this. Yet the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, Turn from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and my statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets." But they would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. That's tough. They went after false idols and became false. That should be an episode for another day. Or maybe it already was the previous episode, right? You should look into it. Um, and they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. And they abandoned all the commandments of the Lord their God, and made for themselves metal images of two calves. And they made an Asherah, and worshipped all the host of heaven, and served Baal. And they burned their sons and their daughters as offerings, and used divination and omens, and sold themselves to do evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. Therefore the Lord was very angry with Israel, and removed them out of his sight. None was left but the tribe of Judah only. None but the tribe of Judah only. Judah also didn't keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the hand of plunderers until he had cast them out of his sight. When he had torn Israel from the house of David, they made Jeroboam the son of Nebat king. And Jeroboam drove Israel from following the Lord and made them commit great sin. The people of Israel walked in all the sins that Jeroboam did. They did not depart from them until the Lord removed Israel out of his sight, as he had spoken by all his servants, the prophets. So Israel was exiled from their own land to Assyria until this day. All right. I know, I know that was a, that was a lot of scripture. I understand, but it gives us much needed context, not just for the rest of this half, but for the entire episode, right? That is the, that's the area that Jesus went to, right? The land of Zebulun and Naphtali, right? In the former time, Isaiah says, Isaiah 9, 1, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And after reading the account in 2 Kings 17, can't you see why? All right, they were doing wild stuff 
rank idolatry, rank despising of God, rejection of his prophets, scoffing at the prophets, murdering their own children, sacrificing their children to these false systems of religion. And God says no more. I'm bringing you into contempt. You are judged. You're going away into captivity, right? But according to prophet Isaiah, the story doesn't end there, right? Though he did bring them into the land of contempt in those former Old Testament times, in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. And I want to read a little bit more of Isaiah here, um, just to uh, just just to really get some context going, right? Just to get the rest of this, right? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And it's definitely deep, right? Second Kings 17, deep darkness there. On them has light shone. So Isaiah is prophesying that on those people, light will shine, right? Light will shine on them. Again, you've multiplied the nation, you have increased its joy. They rejoice before you, as with joy at the harvest, right? All the planting and tilling of the discipline of the Lord will grow into a repentance. They will have joy as at the harvest, right? They will also um, be glad as when they divide the spoil, right? King Jesus shares his win over sin and death with us, Ephesians 1. Right, Ephesians chapter one, he sits God the Father sits us with Christ in the heavenly places, right? Right? Jews today get to have a taste of that through Jesus Christ. Thirdly, um, verse four, for the yoke of his burden, the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you've broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. Why? For to us, a child is born. And I think most Christians know the rest, right? Warrior garments will be burned as this prophesied child will have the government upon his shoulders as the rest of, um, as the rest of this chapter talks about, right? This is, I mean, these are all images that are, that are very reminiscent, very reminiscent of, of Messiah, Messianic ministry type images, right? And he's saying that's the kind of light that's going to shine on a part of Israel as rebellious and as sinful as the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, right? Why does Matthew even call them Galilee of the Gentiles? Because Assyria conquered them, right? They're on the northern tip of Israel. So if someone's going to invade from the northern side, they're the ones that catch the brunt of that invasion force. They're the ones that catch the brunt of that war machine. And that has a lot of ramifications for culture. Right, so much so that they would, even though they were uh, the land of Israel proper, they would be called Galilee of the Gentiles because of the strong Gentile presence in terms of culture and religion and such like that. That was there, right? I mean, that's a that's a that's a heavy name. That's a heavy moniker, right? But coming back to coming back to Matthew, right? Coming back to Matthew verses. Uh, in verses 16 and 7, Jesus is the great light that dawned on those in the shadow of death, right? Jesus is that great light. Question, how did the light dawn on the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali? 
right? It clearly, Matthew clearly seemed to be saying it's Jesus, but what's his logic? Answer, Jesus began his public ministry there, preaching the gospel of repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? That is how the light of God shone on those rebellious lands, on those lands with such a dark history with God. The light of God shines through Jesus Christ via the gospel of repentance. So don't look down on this message that's been anticipated for centuries in the Old Testament and revealed finally to us via Jesus Christ. This is the plan of God to save shattered Jews and Gentiles both. And he's given you, Christian, a privilege to be a part of this ministry of reconciliation. Don't look down on it. All right, don't look down on it. I know our culture does, but we better not. We better not look down on this. This is the very sunlight of God. As Luke would say, this is the very sunrise of God on darkened peoples, on darkened people groups. And it started to burst forth into this world in Zebulun and Naphtali, two devastated and rebellious tribes. In Israel's history right but what's this got to do with Jesus calling some fishermen all right what's what's that got to do with this in Matthew's gospel right and you know while walking by the Sea of Galilee he sees those two brothers and he says follow me and I'll make you fishers of men what's what does any what does this prophecy have to do with that why does Matthew go from this prophecy to the call of the fishermen well let's talk about it right to be made into a fisher of men, you just focus on following Christ, right? That's the beauty of that call, right? Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Not follow me, and you'll make yourself into a fit. No, no, I will do the transformative work. You just look upon me, right? You keep your gaze right here, and I will make you all you need to be made into to serve me and serve my kingdom well. You just focus on me, right? And what did they do in response to that call? Well, they left an extremely big catch, right? Matthew doesn't give us the details on how big the catch was, but Luke does. It was a big catch, and that was after a really empty night of fishing. They reprioritized their life to place preaching repentance at the top of the list. And like I said, Luke gives more details than Matthew in this instance to compare and contrast in Luke's gospel, um, one of his, I mean, in every gospel, it's an emphasis, but especially in Luke, uh, he goes out of his way to compare and contrast uh, people's reactions to what God is doing. He'll compare and contrast healthy and unhealthy uh, reactions to the work of God in Jesus Christ, right? Luke contrasts proper responses to Christ with improper ones. Matthew leaves out the nitty-gritty of the interaction between Peter and Christ that Luke includes to emphasize the fulfillment of Isaiah 9, right? Prophet Isaiah prophesied a great light would dawn, right? Now see the promised king, the God-man Jesus Christ, calling people, getting followers, and then as we'll see in our next episode, he goes straight into the Sermon on the Mount to show that the prophesied great light of Isaiah chapter 9 spreading through Israel in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, right? Luke focuses on Peter's reaction to Christ as a way of saying, this is the proper response to this man. Lord, I'm, I'm, I'm a sinner. I'm a sinner, right? Matthew is focusing on, see, see, 
what the Old Testament prophets prophesied all those years ago. And we know Isaiah was written long before Jesus Christ. Check out the archaeology around the Dead Sea Scrolls, all right? We're looking at 700 to 1,000 years before the time of Christ. These words were written by Isaiah, you know, or if you're that much of a doubter, whoever it was that wrote Isaiah, right? Whoever wrote Isaiah, whether it be Isaiah or somebody else, wrote these words many centuries before Christ, and they apply so truly to his public ministry, right? <clears throat> but as we come into our last uh, couple of minutes here, I want to get into some application from all of this, right? And there's a lot of things to be applied here, right? I hope that you in listening to this are catching some points of application for yourself, right? Like the fact that the Old Testament is the Word of God, as shown through uh, fulfilled prophecy, right? One of our focuses, right? If this book can repeatedly uh, predict the future in crazy detail, crazy accurate detail, and we can confirm that the parts of the text that predicted the future were written long before the fulfillment of those events, I think you've got a good case for a, for a supernatural agent involved in the writing of this book that stands outside of time, right? I, I don't know how else I don't know how else you go about um, I don't know how else you go about explaining that when those other prerequisites are in place. But as far as this section uh, with Peter and them, I want you to notice the two things that were reprioritized underneath the importance of the gospel, right? Verse 20 in this chapter, it tells us that they left their nets, right? They left the family business, job, career, money-making, business deals, business transactions, all that went along with that. They left it and they prioritized the preaching of this gospel, repent above that. They considered it more important than that. And verse 22 tells us that they, he, Matthew words it as uh, they left their father mending nets, right? Family, right? Their job, their career, their business deals, and their family, right? They left the family business to follow the Messiah. Ties were not cut permanently, right? Because the same Jesus that is calling them here also affirms the Old Testament that teaches that you respect mom and dad, that you honor your parents, right? So no, the, the ties are not cut permanently or anything like that. There's no abandonment, but the capacity in which they saw their father would be different after this as they have kingdom priorities now, right? This message is, and, and this is, I think is what Matthew is getting at with the way that he's written this, right? I think what he's getting at, I think it's pretty obvious what he's getting at, is that this message, this gospel message has been the salvation plan of God for the Jews and for the rest of the world for a really long time, right? Really from the foundation of the world, at the very least since Isaiah's time, right? And it's happening now, right? The thing that God has been setting up for since the garden, since the rebellion of his people is happening now, right? The preaching of the kingdom, the building of the kingdom, the saving of souls is more important than your familial or your career obligations, right? It just, it takes precedence, right? Not to say that those other two things aren't important, but they're not more important than the salvation of human souls and the building of the kingdom of Christ, right? 
So Christian, right? If you're going to be committed to the spiritual vision of Jesus Christ, you have to place the preaching of the gospel as one of the as the utmost priority in your life, right? The kingdom of Christ is what we live for, and that impacts our social vision, right? It impacts our social vision. It means that business is not the most important thing in life. It means that making a buck, it means that climbing that corporate ladder, it means that gaining success according to the world's priority is not the most important thing in your life, but winning souls, but making disciples, but introducing people to the God of Israel that can save them from their sins, that can save them from their record of wrongdoing that accuses them. That is the most important thing. And if you have to put some career things on the bench burner, if you have to put some business deals down and set them down. If you have to say goodbye to some really incredible opportunities, if you got to tell mom and dad, if you got to tell brother and sister, if you got to tell wife and kids, hey, some things in life are going to have to change up in the way that I move because I got disciples to make, because I got a gospel of repentance to preach, then that's what you do in love and respect and honor, but also in obedience to the Messiah who saved you, right? And this is definitely a pattern that is foreign to this world. That's why we are foreign saints, right? We are Christians, right? We are little Christs. That's what we do. We serve him and we build his kingdom, right? We don't serve ourselves as we pretend to be worshiping him. That's the sin of Zebulun and Naphtali's ancestors. We're trying to be faithful, we're trying to be faithful, all right? So meditate on that. Think on that. You know, let the Spirit take this message where it needs to be. I hope that, um, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, you do something with this, right? And we're going to be going into an intermission. I got a good announcement for you if you missed uh, the previous episode. And then we will be right back with the Bible study. Now, you might uh, be surprised to learn that this podcast is actually not in any way sponsored or connected to the Voice of the Martyrs magazine. As much as I plug them, I plug resources that I believe to be good and helpful. I don't really need a monetary kickback um, to do that. And so, um, in the spirit of that, I want to announce Friday, March 8th, 2024 at 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time. Mark your calendars. Like I said, Friday, March 8th, 2024 at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, the Voice of the Martyrs is hosting a virtual event called I Am N, right? Ten years ago, the self-proclaimed Islamic State, otherwise known as ISIS, began marking Christian homes and churches with the Arabic letter N as its fighters overran parts of Iraq. The symbol N, N for Nazarene, eh? marked the buildings as belonging to Christians and served as a threat to all believers in the area. Hundreds of thousands of Christians fled the country, but where are those Christians today? And what about those who stayed behind? <clears throat> right? You'll want to hear about this. IMN is a virtual event that will include updates on Iraq and first-hand stories from three Christians who faced intense persecution in places dominated by Islam. You'll learn how God sustained and encouraged them through their suffering and how he is still using them today to help advance his kingdom. Join Voice of the Martyrs and everyone else that's going to be looking at this like me for those inspiring testimonies of costly faith and enjoy worship music. 
uh, from Stephen Curtis Chapman. And these are the these are the three that are going to be there. I take it. Heather Mercer. In 2001, Heather and others on her ministry team were captured by the Taliban for sharing the gospel in Afghanistan. After being tried for a capital crime, they were miraculously released through prayer and help from the U.S. military. Two, Hassan Abdurrahim, I think. In December 2015, Pastor Hassan was arrested on national security charges for providing aid to a persecuted Christian. Though he was sentenced to 12 years in prison in Sudan, he received a presidential pardon and was freed from prison in 2017. And third, John Samara, born in Damascus, Syria. John leads a team that proclaims the gospel in unreached areas of the Middle East and North Africa. He and his team also help build up and equip local, often persecuted Christian communities. If you're interested, like I said, Friday, March 8th, 2024 at 8 p.m. Eastern time, you can register your family, your friends, your church, whatever, for free at imnevent.com. That is imnevent.com. All right. They'll, I, I'm just reading off the flyer here. They'll get you set up with a downloadable host guide, customizable promo materials, streaming access to the end of May, which this podcast will be using and abusing for sure, and a free book offer for everyone who attends. I am in virtual event. All right. I am with the Nazarene for sure. Friday, March 8th, 2024 at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Be there or be square. And now back to the show. All right. Welcome back to the show. Uh, We are going to be continuing with our Bible study in Matthew. I hope you guys are as excited for that I am in event as I am. All right. We are definitely going to have content um, off of that. But for now, we are getting back to the scripture. And what I said in the previous uh, part, um, you know, I'll, I'll mention it after this, actually. Let me let me read the scripture, get it loaded into your mind, and then we'll then we'll chop it up. Right. Uh, Matthew four. Uh, starting in verse 23 and finishing out the chapter. And he, that is Jesus, and he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. All right. Um, what I was saying in the previous 30-minute section, right, about not reading to be inspired, but reading because it is inspired, right? This is one of those sections where I think that particular rule shows itself, like kind of starts the play out uh, practically in how we handle the Bible, right? Because you've got the Sermon on the Mount coming up in the next few verses. You just left some uh, really exciting prophecy stuff, right? So these couple of verses really don't seem like much, right? Just seem like flyover territory on your way to the next uh, really big attraction, really big chunk of teaching um, by Jesus, right? Um, And so, you know, you don't really, if you're reading the Bible to be inspired, these couple of verses are ones that you're 
you know, probably more liable to skip over than some others, right? But if we're trying to be a responsible student of scripture, right? If we're trying to be, uh, if we're trying to really be different in how we handle the word, then we have to pay due emphasis to what's being said here and really take it slow, right? Take, you know, you take these verses slow and you really bring your imagination to the text and you flesh this out. And the funny thing is when you do that, right? When you make, uh, when you make that fuzzy feeling of inspiration you get from the text, subservient to your responsibility to handle the text well and properly read it and properly exegete the text, right? Exegesis is just the process of letting the text say what the text is trying to say. When that's what you emphasize, what ends up happening is you are inspired, but you are, but you get inspired from the text to do what God wants you to do out of that text, right? If you're reading a text that is encouraging, uh, you know, repentance or an examination of idolatry, a proper exegesis of that text should should inspire you to do those things, right? Um, and obviously, text can inspire you to do multiple things at one time. Obviously, clearly, and the Holy Spirit has a way of communicating to his children through the text. Roger got all that right? But we got to treat all of scripture as inspired and not treat any of it as flyover territory. It's all there. It's all for a purpose, right? And it's all there for us. So let's actually eat it all, right? Right? Let's not get up from the table until we have licked the plate of life clean in the name of Elohim, right? So hopefully you got your Bibles. Um, and I will show you just some things that I pulled out of this little section here. And it is, uh, oh, wow, there, there's a lot here. Like I said, a lot of uh, misconceptions are going to be challenged here. A lot of uh, that first point I was talking about, who was Jesus really? What did he really teach? You get a lot of this in this little section here. So uh, without further ado, let's dive into it, right? I have entitled the second half of this message, The Miraculous Ministry of Jesus. And boy, what a meditation this is, right? Verse 23, we see the phrase, all Galilee, right? He went throughout all Galilee. And that is amazing, right? Before we even get into the teaching and all that stuff, just all Galilee in light of what we were just reading in the Old Testament, in Isaiah 9, in 2 Kings uh, 17. This is amazing, right? That the Lord in human form is traveling around the rebellious, sinful, darkened lands of Zebulun and Naphtali as Isaiah prophesied. I mean, that's just, that's just fantastic. That's just fantastic. And if you read the Old Testament as I do, right, seeing the angel of the Lord as frequently a pre-incarnate visitation of uh, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, right? Then the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ is just the ultimate fulfillment of that typological picture, right? Right? That Jesus is the one who reveals the Father, right? John chapter 1 tells us that no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's right hand, he has made him known. And so throughout the Old Testament, when we see the angel of the Lord visiting um, you know, visiting this earth, right? Visiting Abraham, uh, visiting um, Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Visiting Gideon, visiting Joshua, right? 
we see Jesus making the Father known, right? Making the Father known. And so now, instead of a short-term visitation in some sort of powerful form, we have a long-term stay in the incarnation in human flesh, right? The ultimate visitation of the one who is the messenger of Yahweh, right? Amazing, amazing. And it's here that he goes to Zebulun and Naphtali, right? The prophecy definitely said that they are people dwelling in darkness, right? So where else would the light of the world go but where it's dark, right? I mean, let, let, that, be, let that be a lesson for us too, right, in our own personal uh, ministry efforts with the people that God's placed in our lives, right? What do we speak to? What do we uh, bring the gospel message to? Where it's dark. That's where we take the light, right? Because the first will be last and the last first, right? <clears throat> the next thing it mentions in the text, after Galilee, you get a comma and a space, and it says, teaching in their synagogues, right? Just meditate on that, right? Jesus, God in human form, teaching, teaching in an earthly synagogue. Amazing, isn't it? Amazing. But that bring that creates some mental pictures for us that challenges some pretty popular misconceptions that exist in our culture, right? Jesus, God in human form, teaching in their synagogues. Clearly, Jesus is around religious people a lot during this season of life, right? If that's where the if that's where his teaching is kind of centered around, right? If those locations are where you're most liable to hear Jesus teaching, especially in long form, right? Then I would say that that challenges the idea in our culture that Jesus didn't like religion or religious people, right? Right? I like Jefferson Bethke as much as the next guy. I really do. Um, and I personally really love his poem, right? I love Jesus, but hate religion. But you got to understand, man, that poem was to a very specific cultural context, um, in the time that it came out in. And I think there are, I think there are people that would take that idea. If you don't know what poem I'm talking about, then I guess this is all lost on you. But, um, our culture definitely likes to put down religion and religious people and say, oh, Jesus was, you know, Jesus was very critical of the religious, right? You see what he said to the Pharisees? Well, be careful. You, uh, you religious Christian, Jesus might also be saying that to you. And I'm like, well, not that that's a bad warning. It's a really good warning. But a lot of the times that sort of thing is said out of a desire to simply shut up those who are preaching the same repent and believe, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand gospel that Jesus had on his lips, right? Jesus making himself known in the context of the Jewish religious system challenges the idea that organized religion is distasteful to God or a lesser form of spirituality, right? How many times in our cult, like the idea of being spiritual, but not religious is very popular in our culture, which I've always kind of thought was a very naive way of thinking. You know, I was remember, I remember I was at, um, I was at a Charlotte, uh, I was at a gay pride event in Charlotte. Hope to go back. Um, hope to go back this summer. Um, might make some content around it. Uh, we'll, we'll see. Um, but I was at a gay pride event in Charlotte and I was, 
uh, talking about Jesus with a guy there. And he said, you know, I'm spiritual, but not religious. I'm not really into the whole organized religious thing. And I was like, okay, well, what do you mean by spiritual and not religious? And the man said that he, that it meant that he was open to any spiritual influence in his life. And I asked him, I was like, okay, when you go to sleep at night, do you leave your doors unlocked and wide open? So that way you can be open to any uh, influence that may come in the night. And he said, well, no. And I was like, okay, but why? And he was like, well, because I don't know who's out there. You know, like some of those cats might mean me harm. And I said, exactly. Right. What you just said is spiritually speaking, you live your life with your doors unlocked and wide open for any entity to influence you. But aren't you making an assumption that all spiritual beings just want to be nice to you and chummy and help you out? Like, why make that assumption? Right? Especially with your experience with humans, right? Right? You're dealing with spiritual beings. Why do you assume that all spiritual influence is healthy and good? But... In some ways, that's just the consequence of a pluralistic society, society that we live in, right? But that's the madness of being spiritual but not religious, right? I want the veneer of religion over my life. As Peter would say, I want the appearance of godliness, but I'm also denying the power through which it comes, the cross of Christ, right? The cross of Christ and, you know, obedience to the word. Um, however, the synagogues weren't originally a part of the Old Testament setup that God created, but they weren't a bad idea when you understand what they were about. They're not a bad idea. And God is all powerful, right? He's powerful enough to make himself known through human institutions and religious, uh, and religious organization, right? So again, just, just challenging that idea of categorically dismissing organized religion, right? While also understanding that all religion in some sense is organized in the sense that everyone's got their own way of observing their spirituality. There's an organization to it. They might be poorly organized, but there's organization all the same, right? And that brings me to the next part of the sentence, right? Again, right? Like this is, this is scripture that you wouldn't normally read like this. And that's why I'm taking it slow because I don't want you to miss any of the gold on the way to the Sermon on the Mount, right? I don't want us to miss anything. But the next thing I see in the text here is proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right? Teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. And what is that message? It is repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? Another one of those words that our culture really doesn't like, repent. Ah, oh, that old archaic notion repent. Are you really telling me that there's something wrong with me? Our culture would say, All right? You think you're so much holier than thou and that don't worry. When we get into the Sermon on the Mount, I will cover that particular objection in full detail, right? But what I want you to notice in this text is his audience, right? All right. Telling people that they need to repent assumes they have a sin problem that is lethal spiritually. So it would, in a way, be surprising somewhat that this message is going to Torah-following religious Jews. 
somewhat Torah following religious Jews, right? This challenges the idea that organized religion apart from Jesus can save or atone for sin, right? And I know that sounds like whiplash, right? Weren't you just saying, weren't you just praising organized religion a second ago? What I was saying a second ago is that the idea that organized religion is somehow a limitation on God being able to uh, reveal himself to uh, soft-hearted seekers of truth is nonsense. However, if your organized religion is a replacement for the for trusting in the sacrificial work of Christ, then that's a problem, right? Right, that's a problem. If your organized religion is subservient to the teachings of Christ and just enables you uh, and you know helps you to better understand, to better follow after Jesus, I'm all for it. If your organized religion becomes an idol, if your adherence to your arbitrary religious system becomes a source of comfort to you, right? If you start feeling like you're uh, more on the good books with God on the days where you read your Bible consistently or not, then you're, you're setting yourself up for a dangerous path. You're setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment, for a lot of bitterness when God doesn't do what you think you've strong-armed him into doing via your obedience there, right? We, we got to watch out sometimes, right? Organized religion has its uses, but once you start replacing God with it, once you start trying to strong arm and twist God's arm for four things based on your obedience, now you're starting to you're starting to wander off away from the territory of the gospel. And that's that's dangerous. That's dangerous. Right? But let's also meditate on the content of Jesus's message, right? What was it centered on? Right? It says he was teaching in synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, right? So what scriptures would Jesus be opening in his teaching and in his proclamation? Nothing in the New Testament, because the New Testament had not yet been written, right? The content of Jesus' message was centered around the gospel and rightly teaching the Torah, rightly teaching the Old Testament, to the Jews so they would obey the gospel of God, right? Which brings us to a couple of conclusions, right? Jesus preaching out of the Old Testament to get the Jews to obey the gospel, right? And that's a big statement I just made, that Jesus taught the Jewish scriptures correctly for the purpose of bringing people to repentance and faith in him. But if you want an example of that, turn nowhere else but Luke chapter 4, where Jesus opens up Isaiah and then goes into two stories concerning two prom concerning a prominent, very prominent Old Testament prophet. And he goes from that as his foundation to say, you need to trust in me as Messiah right? These stories are just pointing out your need for a savior, me, to come save you. And yet you want to hold on to the stories and yet reject the one that they're pointing you towards, right? It's like you just want the trailer for Avengers Infinity War, but you don't want to watch the actual movie. Who does that? Who does that? Right? 
but it also means that we shouldn't throw our Old Testament out, right? If Jesus is able to consistently preach running along the road to the cross, if Jesus is able to consistently get to the cross, get to repentance, and get to true doctrine from the Old Testament, then we as Christians should not ignore it. We as Christians should not come to the Old Testament with an air of snobbery, with an air of uh, hypercritical critique, right? Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty, right? No, 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 no. We should come to the Old Testament humble, understanding that these texts, these stories are inspired of God to teach us more about Jesus, to show us more about who he is and more about what he's done for us, right? more about what the gospel is and what it's doing and where it's going, right? We need to read our Old Testament with that lens on, right? Not chopping it off and just taking the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs. No, we got to take the whole thing. We got to take all of it, right? Because Jesus taught from all of it. And who knows, maybe that's a case I'll make uh, another day. Um, the next thing, uh, the next point of meditation, right? Healing every disease and affliction. And this is, I mean, already this has been a fruitful, it was a fruitful meditation for me in preparing this, but it was when I started thinking about the healing ministry, the healing aspect of Jesus' ministry, that the grace of God, just my appreciation for the grace of God just, just skyrocketed. And I hope it does for you too, right? The massive, undeniable displays of power in the healings of Jesus Christ that no Old Testament prophet could match in amount or substance, right? Right? You can't even count the number of miracles that Jesus actually does in the text, right? That the text mentions, right? You can count the specific ones that have stories attached to them, but then you've got moments like this where it's just everybody brought everybody and he healed pretty much everybody. That's a lot of bodies, man. That's, that's a lot of people, you know? The next, like, Elisha, or Elijah in the Old Testament has seven miracles attributed to him. And then Elisha comes along and asks God for uh, a double portion of the power of Elijah. And then, you know, so if you count the miracles that are attributed to Elijah or happen around Elisha, you actually have double the miracles. You have 14. So yeah, God did give him a double portion, but seven here and 14 there is a paltry number to the constant drip of the miraculous around Jesus Christ and his public ministry, right? What Old Testament prophet could compare to this one? None, none. But the reason that these healings are a big deal is because the message to the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali is that despite their track record of sin, which is recorded in scripture, and that needs to be addressed, right? Like in 2 Kings 17, you can read their failure. Sure, it was the failure of some other tribes too, but they're involved in that, right? I mean, people sometimes complain that, oh, when I read the Bible, I feel ashamed. Well, nowhere in the Bible is your life written down for all of humanity to study and critique, right? But their family history was in there, right? 
The message that Jesus is giving to these two tribes is that despite that track record of sin recorded in Scripture, despite the ongoing sin and idolatry of the people, right? Because because Jesus in John chapter 4 will tell the Samaritan woman that the Jews worship what they know because they're sticking to the text somewhat. But the, um, you know, but the Samaritans worship what they don't know. They have a real zeal, but without any knowledge, right? Sin and idolatry. Despite the ongoing sin and idolatry of the people, in spite of their suffering, some of which is a consequence of their own sin, some of it was just tragedy. In spite of their suffering, God intends to love them still and redeem them and buy them out of their sin with plans for the nation to prosper them. That is such a tough thing to believe when your record of sin, suffering, shame, and religiosity in trying to fix yourself are staring you in the face day in and day out, right? I know how shame works. And I think, listener, you understand how shame works too, right? Christian, non-Christian, we all experience shame, right? But for those two tribes who were associated with the Gentiles, they had so lost their Jewish identity, seeing such powerful miracles in such quantity and only in your neck of the woods would be rather convincing, right? It would, it would be rather convincing to have Jesus coming into town and telling you that God loves you, telling you that God intends to fight for you, that God intends to redeem you, that God intends to fix the mended relationship that exists between you and him, that he wants to give you forgiveness of sins, something that the Old Testament system could not offer, right? That is an amazing offer. That is an amazing offer. And it might be tough to believe, but it's a lot easier to believe. It's a lot easier to believe that God loves you when you've got Jesus standing there saying, nope, you're not sick anymore. Nope, you're getting up. Nope, your legs work, you know? Which naturally invites the question, okay, then why don't more people get that now, right? Well, to that, firstly, I would advise you to listen to my uh, Martyrs episodes, right? To my Voice of the Martyrs episodes, and you'll hear quite a few stories of God performing the miraculous for those that seek. But the second thing I would say to that is these days we have the resurrection of Christ to look back to as this big shining neon sign that God's love for you has not changed. As sure as the death and resurrection of Christ is a historical fact, as sure as the sun and moon rise in the morning and night, as Jeremiah says, you can know, you can know that the Messiah, that the Messiah's work works, right? We have the resurrection of Christ to look back to and at, but we also have the miracle of new birth, right? Jesus in John tells us that anyone, anyone that loves him and keeps his commandments, right, God will make himself known to them. And how will he do that? The Father and the Son will make their home with him. The Holy Spirit will move in. He will regenerate them from the inside. They will know that they are born again. They will know. They will have a desire to follow God, right? They'll have a true desire to follow God. They will know that their sins are dealt with, right? And God's spirit will witness to your spirit personally, saying, Abba, Father, right? He's saying, I will give you your own personal miracle that lasts for eternity. So that way anyone throughout time can know. 
can know that if they love me and if they're willing to serve me, and if they do serve me, if they do obey my gospel, that they're mine and I got them, right? <clears throat> but I want you also to note something else as we come here to the end, right, as we're challenging misconceptions here. I want you to note how Matthew differentiates between disease, epileptic, and paralytic people, and demon-oppressed people. The Bible teaches that though demons can be a causal agent for bodily dysfunction, there is a distinction between the two, and not every sickness, disability, or mental illness is a result of demonic attack. So if someone tells you that the Bible teaches that demons are the cause of disease, then simply know that that person is not handling scripture properly on this point. All were healed by Jesus, though. Physical and spiritual maladies are all under the authority of Christ. And that's amazing, right? These healings show that he definitely does have the authority to usher in a new kingdom, that he definitely is empowered by God, right? His baptism showed us that, right? His miraculous baptism, his miraculous birth, and now his miraculous miracles and the message of grace and God's love that he teach. All of it is a display of the light of God shining via Christ, via the message of the gospel, right? And all that leads us to verse 25 that tells us that great crowds from seemingly everywhere followed him, right? <clears throat> and people came to the great light of Isaiah 9 from all over as prophesied. Crowds, and this thing about crowds, right? Just something to note. Uh, oftentimes we can say we can be pretty uh, critical of crowds, but they do have at least one practical purpose. Crowds create exponential advertisement, right? Because each person tells another person, and now your crowd's doubled. However, on the flip side, they, crowds are also ripe for emotionalism, emotional manipulation, and shallow disciples, right? And that's a problem that is going to have to be addressed if Jesus is trying to build his kingdom, right? And that makes me excited because the Sermon on the Mount will address all of that. And like I said, I was wondering if I should have done the Sermon on the Mount only. That's how much I've wanted to get to this uh, area. So it's amazing that we get to basically start 2024 with the Sermon on the Mount, um, which is just an amazing thing to focus on at the beginning of any endeavor, right? Uh, I hope that this has been edifying. I hope that this has been life-giving uh, to you that have been that have been hearing and listening and studying along with me for the last hour, uh, I hope that I hope and pray that God has uh, spoken to you in this. I hope and pray that your heart has been open, uh, or at least is moving in that direction. Um, you know, towards considering Jesus. And if you're a Christian, I hope that you've been properly uh, challenged, properly comforted, um, and properly spurred on in your kingdom directive, right? I hope that uh, hope that, that pulse has been checked. Is it beating? Are you alive for Christ? And if so, how are you going to commit yourself to the spiritual and social vision of Jesus Christ this week, right? Loving God with everything that you've got, all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, loving your neighbor as yourself, making disciples wherever, however you can, according to the law of love in Christ Jesus, right? Find a way to serve your neighbor. Find a way to serve your local body, right? And be faithful to the king this week. Go serve your king. And we will be back next week 
with another episode of the Foreign Saints podcast. Peace.